This is Yusai. Welcome to Let's Talk, a place for open conversation. Rice Box is an award-winning restaurant boasting the best chashu in Los Angeles. Husband and wife team Lydia and Leo Lee founded this Cantonese barbecue together to continue a three-generation legacy. Also. Ezra Turalo, also known as Mr. Aloha, became a household name to football fans as a defensive tackle in the NFL, playing on several teams including the 1998 NFC champion Atlanta Falcons. A powerful advocate for the LGBTQ+ community, he's also a motivational speaker and a published author. Family restaurants are a tradition in many Asian families, especially for immigrants. There are businesses deep in the heritage of recipes passed from the custodians of food culture. Lydia and Leo both came from this tradition, but began to forge their own way. Tell me a little history about your heritage. I am second generation. I was born in the United States, so I grew up in a small town called Calexico. It's on the border of California, next to Mexico. Uh, it's a very small town, and down there is a very Hispanic community. And when my family immigrated over there, they they did what every immigrant did. They worked in the kitchen, and they opened a Chinese restaurant. And once they opened a Chinese restaurant, they're like, "Guess what? You're gonna work in a Chinese restaurant." So I started working in the kitchen as a dishwasher, as a buster, as a server, and I just continued working there. And I used to keep working in the, in the restaurant because I wanted to stay home. I was a kid, but then once I got into the kitchen. Like I was really feeling it. I was really finding myself in the kitchen. I felt very comfortable. So when I told them I wanted to go to culinary school, they were totally against it. They were like, "Just well, you're gonna go to culinary school. Why don't you stay here and work?" And I was like, "Well, I know the limitation I have working at the restaurant." So I told them like, "No, I need to learn. I need to explore. I need to you know learn and understand." I was idolizing French chefs and everything, so I wanted to go out and learn. They like finally allowed me to, and I was like, "Okay, great." So I went to the Culinary Institute of America in New York. It was a total eye opener. I learned so much there. I was learning mother sauces. I was learning how to fabricate a whole pork. There was just so much things about mise en place me that I knew that I would never learn it just staying at my family's restaurant. So about when I was about to graduate, I was like, okay, I have all these ideas what I could do once I come back home. But then little did I know they were actually planning to close it. And once that happened, I was like, okay, fine, I'll find my own career path and I'll go out and cook. Even though I was working in the kitchen, working for other chefs, I was cooking everyone else's food. I was never really uh, doing what my family did. I was cooking like、uh, French, Italian, and so even though at the end of the day I would go to buy Cantonese barbecue for dinner, you know, I was eating that food. That's stuff that it was comfort. It was something I loved. Well, Lydia, you also grew up in the history of restaurants in your family, and and they were all Cantonese style. So、um, yeah, I grew up in my grandpa's restaurant.、Um, he he has a Cantonese restaurant in Central Hong Kong. Uh, for forty years,、um, but unfortunately, it's closed down because he passed away.、Uh, so I grew up in that a lot. So same thing as Leo. Like you know, I spent all my time there.、Um, I, I you know, well, I was watching them. Like my brother will be helping out in in the actual kitchen. But when I'm older, old enough, then as you said, like I'll be like helping my grandpa and grandma throw dumplings. Like those simple little things.、Um, when I, as I'm getting a little bit older, that's what I learned to do in the restaurant. I met Lydia.、Uh, we started talking about it. And we found that common, like you know, we both family owned a restaurant back then. 
there was a love for the, this food that we had, especially when I found out that their grandmother owned the Cantonese barbecue restaurant. I was like, hey, pass me the recipe. But she was like, uh, she kind of laughed about it. I was like, hey, yeah, ask, ask the family. But, you know, it wasn't until we got married, then she kind of like, it was like, hey, okay, here's the recipe. It wasn't intentional, I swear. <laughs> it just, it wasn't the timing. I love this story, and it's such a common story that we hear from first and second generation of Asian Americans that when you arrive to a new country, a land of dream, America, that you get to do whatever you want. But food industry seems to be the place that, I don't want to say the easiest, but it's a common denominator that allow us to, to not have to speak the language and just be, be able to hide behind the kitchen and produce and, and feed the community that's around us and you move forward. And I can completely understand that your family did not want you to stay in that business. A lot of these businesses has been created because of necessity. My father did the same thing in Terry Hill, Indiana, when we first landed in America. You know, language barrier, worked with my uncle in a Chinese restaurant. And I'm sure you'll probably five, six, when you started walking and talking, you were already in the kitchen helping out, right? Yeah. And that's, that is something that echoes all of us as, as the Asian Americans because there's no labor rules in Asian American Correct. Exactly. <laughs> Chinese restaurants always take your kids to work day. When you go to a Chinese restaurant, when you see a grandmother with a grandchild, holding them in her hand like Lydia's holding Ari, Holding dumplings, you know those are the best dumplings you're ever going to get. Because there's a baby spit in it, and then grandma y'all is spit in it. Those are the secret ingredients of holding the wall that you never get anywhere else. But all joking aside, that it truly is how we grew up. For me, a passion for food didn't come until later in life. Growing up in a family restaurant, cooking and washing dishes were always chores that I tried to avoid. You had this passion about food, even though you grew up in the kitchen. I know for sure nobody at five, six, seven, eight, even teenage years want to spend time butchering a chicken, then go out, hang out with friends in a, in a parking lot to do nothing, right? But you somehow still fell in love with food. What is it that you think that with all those days that you don't get to hang out with your friends, but you're in the kitchen, that you still fell in love with food? I think it's like family. Yeah. It's like spending time with family, like learning. Like I'm almost like, generally intrigued like I'm always questioned like I'm not that annoying kid that's like <laughs> like what are you doing like you know like what is this like so I'm generally intrigued of what my grandpa and my grandma is doing what my mom and my dad is cooking so like that kind of curiosity I guess the stem off of my love for food for me I, I used to be a fat kid I used, to be really, I used to be a big kid and I used to eat a lot and it was something that you know I just you just you just love eating and well being growing up in the restaurant business didn't help so there's always food around me it's just I grew up eating and I grew up understanding that, you know, what made me happy was food. And then what made me even happier was cooking it, knowing how it was made. It's ingrained in both of us, like, you know, and that's the thing. We connected about it. We were just part of talking. We would love to go out and eat. We started talking about food. And food always just brings people together. Everyone has experience about food, you know, whether it's good, whether it's bad. You know, I could listen to you talk about your culture. And what, just, just sharing it and then talking about it. And at the end, there's something, there's a level of, no matter what, what, what ethnicity, what race you are, what anything you are, you understand food at a level that, you know what, it comforts you somehow. What makes Rice Box so special? Basically, uh, Rice Box is based off of my grandpa's recipe, uh, who also owned a Cantonese barbecue restaurant in Hong Kong for over 40 years. Uh, so my memories is just being, being there a lot, you know, like, 
after school, during the weekends, spending all gathering there. So rice box basically is based off of his recipes. I miss his cooking. You know, I miss his cooking, being in LA for so long, being away from Hong Kong for so long. So we asked my family for his recipes and we kind of play around with it. And then we both just love it a lot. Even though like my family wasn't cooking Cantonese barbecue, like I really loved eating it. I enjoyed it a lot growing up. It was something that I really loved. But then LA was really difficult to find good ones. And then when I first had grandma's recipe, I was like, there's something different. There's something very special about this recipe. And then that's when I kind of like, you know what? We, we have to keep this alive. We have to keep this going somehow. You know, eventually the conversation got into like, you know, we should open a restaurant and do something about it because, you know, it's something very special to her. And it kind of brings me back to my childhood. So that's where Rice Walk started. Best chasu in Los Angeles magazine. <laughs> when I heard about that, I was so excited because, you know, growing up in Asia and moving to the United States, Chashu is something that we all love. Let's tell everybody what chashu is for those who don't know. Chashu is like, it, it, it's a Cantonese barbecue. It's a Cantonese barbecue dish, typically more of a fan, your pork, a pork shoulder, and so forth. But it's a roasted thing. But it, overall, it takes a lot of time and care, and everyone has their own version of it. Once you had a good one, you never forget it. You always remember what a good chashu is. It has, that, it has a balance of a lot of flavors. It's uh, they're sweet, they're savory, it's uh, salty. So it, it gives that really umami taste on it. And it's, it's, it's a quintessential, when you talk about Cantonese barbecue, that one dish, it's like chasu is exactly what it is. Like that's, that's chasu is what Cantonese barbecue represents. And for those of you guys who don't know what that looks like, you've seen it. Because when you go to any Chinatown, you will see <laughs> in the windows hanging with Roasted duck, alongside the roasted duck, is always his best friend, chashu, in a giant yes. piece of chashu, <laughs> yes. hanging yes. in the window, along with cousins and families of squares, <laughs> and also intestines. Because in a good Chinatown, you eat everything on an animal. Nothing yes. is yes. wasted. When you begin to really put a note on your culinary point of view at this restaurant, you wanted to make sure that Tasu really shine, but in a way that's modernized. And take us through that journey that how do you modernize something that we see everywhere in St. Gabriel Valley and Monterey Park and Chinatown and still hold true to what it stands for and not losing the heritage of that meal, but still celebrate it with a modern twist? How we modernize it is really just the execution or the approach or the presentation of it. Uh, at the end, the core of it, the flavor is still the same. We're not going to change that too much. There are dishes that we play around with. We kind of like modernize it, change it a little bit and everything. But ultimately, it comes down to recipe needs to stay the same. We'll use better ingredients. For the pork, we use the dwarf pork that my grandpa didn't use. And the chicken, we use organic chicken. And then the sauces that we put on top of the suya porchetta is a little, like a little bit more modernized. So we just add like a little tidbits of what me and Leo represents into what my... Um, grandpa's recipe is but ultimately we try to really keep it the same because that's what we want to do yeah. there's one ingredient that was pointed out and it caused a lot of controversies in the kitchen you chose not to use msg in your food yeah. Let, let's talk about msg for a second because i guarantee yeah. Lydia's yeah. grandfather was an msg fan <laughs> yes, i'm pretty yes. sure <laughs> that's all we took out so part of it was when i was like playing with the recipe and that's the thing is that when i went to culinary school they taught me how to develop flavors. We're using such a good quality pork here. And, you know, also, it's not, there's nothing wrong with MSG. I grew up in MSG yeah. and it was nothing so easy MSG. Yeah. We choose not to use it because, you know, I just 
want to highlight the part. When we're doing working with quality ingredients, and then what CIA taught me is that you could develop so much from just uh, with, with ingredients than just using MSG. That's what part I come in. Like you know what, I see your grandpa's recipe. I respect everything about it, except the part where the MSG. You know what, I nothing against it. I just like you know what, let's just take it out and let's just try. It. And then you know what, I'm gonna use certain things we believe in, and let's see how it goes. And you know what, it works perfectly fine. Honestly, if we don't mention it, people might assume that there is MSG in it, but or people would not even notice that there was no MSG. I don't need that meat tenderizer. I don't need it. It's really a good piece of meat. So it's like, you know what? Why am I doing something extra to it? I should be really highlighting the pork itself. That's that's the part where we're, where we're trying to find a balance here. We're representing Tasio at a level that, you know what? You didn't need MSG to create that kind of umami, that depth of flavor. We're, we're doing it already. How we're doing it, it works. But I do have a little tip for people out there who don't like MSG. I'll tell you what's really good for Take MSG, put out two teaspoons of hot water, blend your MSG, make it into a paste, and when you get mosquito bites, put it on. It works oh, like magic. He, he gets mosquito bites all the time. I get mosquito bites. Thanks for letting us know. <laughs> so rice spots don't use MSG in their food, but they perhaps they use, use the it skin. on their mosquito bites. <laughs> When your business and credit partner is your spouse, things can get hot in the kitchen. Any creative project is a constant learning experience. It's incredible to feel the energy between Lydia and Leo. We collaborate a lot. Even though we clash, you know, our way of thinking things, um, I would be more methodical that you don't need to be like step by step and you do one thing. She would just say, hey, just do this. And I was like, just do this. I'm like, well, let me figure it out. Let me break it down first. So she would have a uh, hundred ideas. I have a lot of ideas. She would tell me, do this, do that, do this. I would say, wow, take a step back and slowly think things through. And eventually we'll come back together and be like, okay, fine. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> but like I learned a lot from him too, being in the, in the restaurant business. is because, you know, we can't just have like hundred things on our menu. We have a small, small restaurant with small kitchens, you know, small space. So, you know, I learned a lot from him that like, you know, we have to have like a little smaller menu, you know, we have to have like produce and everything. So yeah. Because I, I know exactly the process. I'm going through the steps and process that what I need to do, reason pause, prep, you know, uh marination. Just so much levels to it. And I was thinking like we we're, we're starting off, you know, as a really small team and I'm like, well if I'm doing this, how am I gonna do that? So if there was a struggle and I had to kinda of, like we have to like, balance it out but it's also very great because i'm very in the bubble sometimes but when she comes along like hey we need to do this i just need to think things through and then she pushes me to a different level well the meals itself <laughs> proves the amazing collaboration and creativity i myself had a wonderful meal today for rice oh, thank you lydia and leo just gave birth to the first child who was born in the midst of a global pandemic Oh my oh god. god. <laughs> Honestly, I think it's the best thing ever. Yeah. It's, like... <laughs> at first, it was very scary. It was very, like, unknown. But during this time, having him really makes us happier. It's just like, I don't know how to explain it. It's just that, you know, there's so much that's going on. It's so hard to find joy and happiness. And But when we're at home and we're taking care of him, it's like, that's all we see and that's all we care. And so, at first, it was like, don't, don't, don't do it, not now. But now it's like, I'm glad it happened because it diverts our attention. We know what our focus is. We know what we're doing. It gives them a goal, not just, like, you know, there's so much going on with them. 
It's just that it, it helps us. It, it kind of like puts us, uh, puts a perspective in things. It's just us two. We'll, you know, we'll ride it through whatever it is. But then now that we have him, you know, there's so much to worry about. But at the same time, there's like, there's so much happiness. Every morning we see him, we're like, yay, there he is. <laughs> you know? So it, it's, it's, it's definitely challenging. It's very difficult. It's very different. Uh, uh, and it's it's definitely scary, but you know what? It's it's great. <laughs> it's great. I'm like glad. You know, now before we were we're trying to modernize certain things, and now now we're actually true mom pop shop. And then the only thing is we can't take them into there and start making dumplings. That's yeah. all. Not right now. <laughs> not Maybe now. later. Maybe later. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, uh, it's such a great gift. So congratulations. An exceptional athlete who has been a hero to many young people, Ezra Tuolo came out as gay in 2002 on HBO's Real Sports. Charming and charismatic, he once sung the national anthem before an NFL game. Was a contestant on The Voice and is a noted chef with a successful catering company. With his Polynesian heritage and his sexual identity, Ezra has walked an unlikely path. Aloha! Thank you for having me, man. I'm super excited. Thank you so much for joining me. Talk to me about 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 what it means to be having a Polynesian heritage. You know, it's the one that I got, right? It's the one that God, when He brought me into this world, He said, "You are going to be a Samoan, a Polynesian." So He put me with a beautiful family, born in Hawaii, and growing up, I was the youngest of eight children. I wasn't spoiled. I was getting my butt kicked all the time. But it's all about family, right? It's all about ohana. It's all about you know taking care of your own.、Uh, and when I say that, taking care of our elderly and stuff like that, the love that you see、uh, when you、uh, see on television or you watch movies on Hawaii—that is what you get. It was great growing up in Hawaii. The beaches there—we were always at the beach. I grew up in a very poor family, but I guess growing up in Hawaii, you know, my mom did a fantastic job making sure we didn't feel that way. And、uh, my dad passed away when I was ten years old. But as far as culture-wise, it is a beautiful, rich, amazing culture that I was raised in.、Uh, I am Samoan, German, French,、um, German, French from、uh, the、uh, World War One and Two. So <laughs> in those days, there's a lot of mixture going on, and so that's what I am. While you were in Hawaii, growing up with with seven other siblings. When did NFL happen? When did this the strength and even the courage to to go for it? You don't know what your life has in store for you. And I tell this to people, and they go like, "You think I'm a psychic?" But I'm not a psychic. I just I used to have visions when I was a little kid, when I was five years old on the beach looking at the sunset, and I saw myself in a different land. People think I'm crazy. I may be crazy, but at that time I wasn't afraid of it. I would embrace it. Because I was part of the LGBTQ community, because I was gay in such a masculine culture, it was very difficult, right? So you're juggling all those things, right? And so、um, I wasn't even thinking about football. I wasn't thinking about NFL. I wasn't thinking about. I didn't think I was going to leave the island. I didn't think it was one of those things where no one left the island, right? So everybody sort of stayed on the island. Yeah, your parents, you know, you, they wanted you to stay there. But anyway, when I escaped, 
I went to California. And that's sort of kind of how it all began for me. I, uh, I started playing football. And what happened was I, I got an opportunity to get a scholarship. I was a blue chip player, meaning I could have gone anywhere in the country. And it was a sport that I was good at. And it was one of those things where I just, I just kept it and I just kept going with it and going with it. But I got to tell you this, because I was gay, it was one of those things where I could hide. And I could unleash all my energy and all the stress and all the depression and all the hurt onto someone, right? Of course, with the, you know, of the protection of the pads. Exactly. Like, oh, that forearm. And that helped me. It was, um, you know, it was lonely. It was very lonely. So that's when I, I started playing football. That's when people started recognizing that my skill. And that's when I got offers to go to uh, school anywhere I wanted to because I was a blue chip player. I, I wasn't even thinking about NFL then. I got recruited uh, and I went to Oregon State. That's where my journey started. While you were playing football, you were closeted. You, yeah. you knew you were already gay because a lot of people go through time to figure out whether they're gay. They buy all different labels under our LGBTQ community and we have all different spectrums. But however, you already knew who you were. Oh, yeah. But yet, because of the culture background and because the sports atmosphere that you got into, you actually had to be pushed back into the closet more so than you could have possibly come out of the closet at that time. I was in the closet, but I got kept pushing further and further and further into the closet, right? Yeah, it was very difficult at that time, right? It was very difficult um, sort of juggling because of the culture that I was in. And, and you know... I knew that I was different, right? And it was a time when I was playing with my friends on the playground. We were like in first grade or something like that. And my friends started teasing this other kid, right? And they started calling him names like Mahu or Fagalati or Fafafine, which means gay, faggot. And, and they're doing it in such a negative way. And they're spitting on him and they're throwing rocks in and they're teasing him. And I remember asking one of my friends, I was like, why are you guys doing that? And he said, oh, because he likes, uh, he likes hanging out with the girls, right? He likes playing with dolls. I thought to myself, well, I like playing with the girls, and I like, I like dolls, right? And I like dressing up with my sister's clothes and putting on their makeup and getting beat up by my brothers at times, you know, every time they caught me. So I saw what I saw, and I saw myself in that kid that they were beating up. And so that is the day where I put that child within me in the closet. And you don't know what it is. You just, your crush is on a boy and not girl right and then you hear the name faggot and then you understand the meaning of the word faggot and then you see how hated it is so that is the day where i had to be stronger and bigger and faster than anyone so no one would throw rocks at me no one would i mean no one would call me names or anything like that but i always knew right i i knew and then growing up you know in a culture that was you know wasn't accepting uh, I grew up in the church. I grew up in that Pentecostal Assembly of God. Hallelujah. And I'm so happy that my mom dragged me to church like, with my other brothers and sisters because they really, uh, I really found out what who, uh, God's true love was. And I, that's, when, um, that's when I started reading the Bible, and that's when I started reading all his love. Not on the negative stuff, but his love. And I found a passage that says, don't put your trust in the flesh because the flesh will fail you, but put your trust in God because he'll never fail you. Right. And so I don't mean to go to church on you, but that I, I want you to understand that that really helped me because years and years 
of going to church and hearing the negative propaganda about who I was, the person running home into the banana patch on my knees, crying to God to take this curse away from me, right? So I think that's really important for people to hear, especially in the LGBTQ community, right? That God is a loving God. And so that's what helped me. That is the reason for the season. And that is the reason why I'm here with you. Heritage means so much to the AAPI community. Our families give us strength, but culture is a powerful force that determines many of the decisions that we make in our lives. I'm Asian American. I know how much culture roots on our ability to be who we are, whether it's career path, whether it's LGBTQ, whether it's, it's choices that we make. A lot of it has to do with shame and pride, right? They go side by side. Are you, are you pride, shame? Which one do you take and when do you find that balance? In the Polynesian community, do you find that over time and with the exposure of the media now and we're celebrating LGBTQ just last month, do you see that culture shift starting to begin to happen with acceptance more? You know, uh, in the Polynesian culture, it's like the American Indian, right? The indigenous Indians, where it's like that double spirit. My culture, it's okay to be a fafafine, meaning, you know, you look like a woman, you act like a woman. So it's like sometimes you're being put in uh, positions where high positions in the culture, right? But when it comes to someone masculine like myself, that is where I think there's a problem. And that's where maybe because, you know, people are going to question the cultural masculinity or think that we're all gay, you are right. Times have changed, right? People have come out of the closet. People are speaking up. The thing below your nose and above your chin is a mouth. People are finding their voices to speak, right? They're finding their voices and, their, and to come out of the closet. And so the more people come out of the closet and tell their stories, the better it is because it educates people, right? It educates people and all our younger generation, as they look upon all us older guys, and, you know, seeing that we're, you know, we're coming out, it sort of kind of helped because I wish when I was younger that I had somebody like that, right? I wish, like, when I was younger, somebody to, like, mentor me or someone to talk to me and give us that positive, like, you know, positive vibe with everything in life, right? But it wasn't like that with me, right? I'm 52 years old, a young 52, and it was not like that. It wasn't, right? It was very hurtful. It was very dark, but I'm so loving today's youth but you have to have the courage within you from from you were young and keep building that courage because i think it's actually takes more strength and courage to be able to say at an older age i'm coming out of closet i think at a younger stage when you decide to come out of closet it, there's a bit of a, a rubble in you that you can still like oh we don't i don't care what people think i'm gonna finally live my way right and a lot of people can get there. Some people finally get acceptance from their family. Some people get acceptance through, through their peers. But you had to deal with acceptance through your teammates while super hormonally masculine culture. <laughs> that takes so much courage and strength. Because of the journey that you have gone through, how ahead of the schedule you were. You, oh. you, you took that train and you took off. And we're just so blessed to be able to ride that train with you because the courage that you gave paved so many roads, not just for other sportsmanships out there, but for LGBT community and for Asian community, for Polynesian community, because we do need to see people of color and reflect on us and see how we can be a better person because somebody else 
have done it. Because there's so much fear in this. When you get older, there's always something that sort of kind of not pressures you, but that speaks to your heart that you need to come out. For me, it was my children, right? My kids, they were young. I was raising it with my partner at the time, and it was so difficult for us to raise our kids because we had to lie a lot. Everything was a lie, right? Everything. We walked down the street. No one knew that we were a family, right? And so we had to make a decision. And so that's what we did. It took our children to give us the strength to come out, right? Because we wanted them to know that their fathers were proud of who they were, but we didn't want to lie anymore. Mm. Man, so the children look like me. So I was their dad. It was easy. But my partner was a Caucasian from Minnesota. And so it was hard, right? So it was like you would, the uncle, the nan, the manny. The, I mean, it was just one, one thing after another, right? It was just crazy. But when we took that step, it was the fear of the known was, it was very scary. We out on Real Sports on HBO, and, um, and it was one of those things, those journey where we just didn't know what was going to happen, right? I remember coming out, it was the hardest thing I've ever done in my life, right? I mean, just to say those words, I am gay. <laughs> it seems nowadays that it's super simple, right? Like people are like, but it was like somebody stabbing me with a knife and turning it because I didn't want to say it. I stayed focused on my family. I stayed focused on my kids. I wanted what all my my brothers that I played in the NFL had. I wanted to walk down the street and everybody know that we are a family, right? That's what I wanted, the small little things, right? They take for granted and we want. But when I came out, it was incredible. And then I got stuck with coding Shakespeare, to be or not to be, right? To be or not to be. To not to be is to like live that American dream, the white picket fence, the two kids, the two dogs minus the wife, and just don't do anything, or to become uh, an advocate, to use your voice, this new voice that I found for good, and to sort of kind of help people. I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know anything about the LGBTQ community. I Seriously, because when you're in a closet, you're in an island. So it was like, it was so confusing. I remember my first speech was in... Indiana University, 3,000 people, right, in this auditorium. And I remember speaking, and I was like, I stopped, and I said, I, I apologize to all of them. I was quoting all these statistics on LGBT, and I was like, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But I said, I don't know. I'm sorry, but all I know is my life. And so let me share it with my life. So I took off the suit, not the complete suit. I turned off the projector, and I just spoke from the heart. And I tell you, it was absolutely amazing. Ezra's life expanded once he came out. He began to see more publicly, and as an impassioned champion for the LGBTQ community, wrote a book and shared his experience. Alone in the trenches. Yeah, I wrote that. And that, again, was a hard thing because they went, um, I was supposed to do a book, and I was like, wait a minute, I'm only 35 years old. Have more life to live, you know? but that's what's incredible, right? It's because you are given these callings. The moment that you woke up and you're awake, then all the beast in you, that all six foot four, three hundred some odd pounds, and and you're given this incredible purpose. And I love the fact that that you went through that journey to found love, religion. It's great for a lot of people that they can find acceptance and love, and we we, we go through that journey individually at the right time what we need, right? I I'm just so I'm so proud to be in your community first of all, and I'm proud to know that 
that you are making so much influences with different organizations you're involved with. What I absolutely love the most is that when you found yourself, you also found your voice. And I'm talking about literally. I've sung before, but when you're living with a crippling secret, when you're living with a crippling secret, I tell you what, it's the most difficult thing to bring the passion out, right? The things that you love, singing, that was like wanted to do more than anything in the world. I wanted to sing and have people hear my music, right? And so, but when you're living with a crippling secret, it's so difficult to do that, right? Cooking, right? I am like, I love to cook. I'm the youngest of eight. That means in a Polynesian family, I was cooking since I was five years old, learning how to make sauces. So all my recipes, you know, I'm a chef also, and all my recipes are my mom's, right? So you're finding all this new love that you have, right? That you want to do. And when you get rid of, when you shed that out, when you shed all that stress, that hurt, that pain, that depression all out, then you can focus on, you can all the things you put on the back burner, you can bring it to the front and you can do it 100% with no regrets and just go for it, right? So yes, I found my voice and uh, the voice found me because I had a video on, uh, on YouTube and then it just went from there. And before you know it, I was in Chicago doing a private audition. Yeah. And then before you know it, I was in front of the judges getting ready to do the blind audition. And it was just such a blessing. But I could not have done that if I didn't come out. Beyond his authenticity and advocacy, Ezra put his platform into action, working for many causes and establishing his own organization. Hate is wrong. I want to talk about this foundation you started and the message behind it. So I had a saying, hate in any form is wrong. Now, obviously, because I was in the closet, it was my way of fighting within the darkness, right? I came up with this saying, hate in any form is wrong. So anytime sexism, racism, or homophobia, people would shout out things and stuff. I would say, dude, hate in any form is wrong, right? So I've said that for the longest, longest time. I started this, uh, this uh, uh, Hate is Wrong, which is an organization to sort of foster diversity within professional sports or sports alone to sort of bridge that gap, right? Because it's been a, it's been a bridge that has not been gapped. So I did that. And also what we do is we do, we raise money for anti-bullying programs. Uh, the reason why? Because I was bullied when I was a little kid. We reach so many stories out there of kids taking their lives because they're bullied and taking their lives, you know, something that could be prevented, right? And something and by easily just having people go and speak and encourage them and try to educate them. That's, that's why we started uh, Hate is Wrong. We support a lot organizations around the country we do an inclusion panel where we bring experts from around the country to speak on uh, issues that are out there and see if we can find out with a solution uh, we follow the Super Bowl and we do an inclusion party which uh, I just wanted to have a presence at the Super Bowl I wanted the LGBTQ community to have a presence at the Super Bowl I've been to the Super Bowl 15 times and I have never seen us represented meaning I played in it once but then I've gone and never have I ever seen us represented. So I wanted us to have a representation. So I created the inclusion party and we follow the Super Bowl and 100% of the proceeds from the party stays in the city where the Super Bowl is hosted for anti-bullying programs. And that's what we do. And I love it, right? And it's one of, it's a small thing that we can do. I have the opportunity I can do and, and I love it, right? So I invite everyone to jump on our website, to get on our mailing list, to, um, to donate if they want to. 
And then also to buy a t-shirt to support and to wear it with pride. So if you wear it, say it, mean it, and do it. Well, it's such a simple concept when you say hate is wrong. It's interesting. When I saw this platform that you have created, first thing I thought of is actually remind myself hate is wrong to yourself. It's, it, it begins with you. For those kids out there, for people going through struggles and whatnot, to give yourself. Give yourself right. a break because it starts from there. Because truly, we know that people will bully other people who are hurting the most themselves, right? We right. we both grew up in cultural struggles as well as being an immigrant in this country and, and finding that substance. All of that has to do with how you view yourself and how you love yourself. you got to start there. So if you can understand hate is wrong for yourself, I truly believe that that is the messaging that will then be able to turn to others. And I tell people, in order for you to live your best life, you got to get rid of all that hate. You got to get rid of all that negative energy, right? And it's as simple as just telling yourself, get out of here or giving it to God. When I go and speak to a lot of these kids across the country, they have lost their voices because of the social media, the fear of one click and reaching 100 to 1,000 people, right? They've lost their voices and and they're scared. But what I try to do is I I try to have them find their voices. The thing below their nose and above their chin is the voice. Use it. You see something that's wrong, say it, yell it, scream it. It is one of those things where our younger generation has lost. They have lost their voices, but they're starting to come around. They're starting to stick up for their friends, stick up for people, right, doing the right thing. And the more we push out like speakers, the more we push out positive energy, the more we push out love into the universe, that's where it's going to start healing. People are going to start changing. All of us who have any sort of platform, it doesn't matter you have 10 followers, you have millions of followers. These people inspire you, therefore you you follow their Instagram and you follow their their, their journey. And, and your fans and people that have heard that I'm coming out here to talk to you, I got so many DMs and people celebrating you. And that's, that puts a smile on my face. And for me, one of the most rewarding things is that I do a little research on everyone before I come on the show and have a pre-talk. And I got to watch all these old footage of yours and seeing these other teammates have what they have said. And then fast forward to what they've said recently and how they become part of your family. Because they at the time like, I don't agree with you. And then five years ago, they're like, I want to show up at your whatever party you got. I'm going to support you. That's the change. Those are the type of change. It may not happen overnight. These talks that we're having every day, it is so important. Whether it's about inclusion, whether it's about LGBTQ, it's just about humanity. Truly, it's that simple. But... And I, I like to encourage a lot of the younger generation and people, live your life. <laughs> your life. Seriously, the best way you can get, get, uh, get back at someone is to live your life and be happy. To show them that joy, right? When I came out, I lost so many friends, so many family members, right? People are coming back, you know, 10 years from now, 15 now. And they're like, oh, sorry, I didn't deal with it, the heart, you know. But they see you. They see you in your life. They see how happy you are. They see you're in a relationship. They see you loving people, right? They see all of that, right? Come back and they apologize, right? But for me, it's like no skin off my back. You're the one who lost five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years of our friendship, right? Mm -hmm. So live your life, you know? When something don't go your way, when you get knocked down, like we've all been knocked down so many times, get back up, dust yourself off and live your life. Right, live your life. You can definitely do that. Live your best life. 
Thank you to Lydia and Leo, and to Ezra for sharing stories on how your backgrounds have shaped your lives, and how you have continued to expand the value of family. Thank you to all my listeners for your constant support. Please subscribe to this podcast for more open conversations. You can visit our website at letstalkwithusai.com and follow me on Instagram at usai88 for updates. Let's Talk is a production of 88 Phases. I'm your host, Usai. Our director, Louis Hyman, and writer, editor, and producer, Trevor Swarmjet. <laughs>